Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Mark. You know, almost entirely tongue-in-cheek, every once in a while we kid around in deacons' meetings about who, who gets to lead music next week because it's not necessarily any of our favorite activity. Not that we don't enjoy the, the experience of worshiping, it's just a, it's a little more enjoyable from there than it is from here sometimes. So every once in a while we kid around about that. But I hold the trump card because I can always offer to lead music if Carl or Mark or Paul wants to preach instead. That's usually the end of the discussion. All right, this morning, take your Bibles with me, if you would, and let's turn to 2 Peter, not 1 Peter where we've been. I, I try and be very careful not to step on pastor's toes, whatever he's in the middle of at the moment. I don't want to interrupt that or, or take something away that he's working on. But 2 Peter this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking into God's word and Uh, Listening to what Peter has to say as he gives a warning, gives a caution, gives an encouragement to the churches with his dying breath, as it were, about the days in which they live. And it just resonated with me as I was thinking about what I was going to preach this morning, where, where the Lord would have us be this morning. It resonated with me. These are not problems. This is not a situation. Peter's words are not words only for the day in which he lived and that the church was about to face in his time, but is really a, a reality in every age, in every church all across the world ever since Christ established his church and will continue to be so. He prepares us For the days in which we live, and there are days that, as we'll see, we can see playing out around us in our day and in our age here in America today. Go ahead and stand with me for a moment, if you would. Let's read through our passage together as we honor the Lord, read his word, and and we'll talk about that a little more in a second here. 2 Peter chapter 3, it'll be up on the screen if you want to read from there as well, verses 1 through 7. Read with me. Beloved... I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water." But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Thank you. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, just give us wisdom and understanding as we look into your word this morning. Help us to take the words of Peter to heart and to recognize how true they yet ring today. Help us to be encouraged by them. Help us to be better prepared for the day in which we live and for the world which we face when we walk back out of these doors. Pray that you give us wisdom and understanding in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Peter writes this second letter, his second epistle, his final letter to the believers which have obtained, as he says in verse 1 of the chapter 1, like precious faith. And he writes just before his death, most likely in the mid-60s A.D. After three decades of service and leadership in the church following Christ's resurrection and ascension to heaven, Peter saw his death soon approaching. And he wants to leave in this epistle a few words of caution, a few words of encouragement to those whom he loved and had cared for so much. The sheep 
whom he had been called by his master to lead, to tend, to care for, and to feed. Peter takes Christ's admonition greatly to heart to feed his sheep. And throughout this short letter, Peter's tone is that of a man who knows his end is near, who deeply desires to pass along some semblance of comfort, caution, encouragement, and warning to those he leaves behind. We see this encouragement in his call to them for future growth in chapter 1. In his reminder of the steadfastness of the word of God as an anchor of truth at the tail end of chapter 1. In his warning regarding false, cheaper, sorry, false teachers throughout chapter 2. And finally in our passage this morning in chapter 3, in his warning of those who are in the world who are diametrically opposed to the truth. You know, in every season of history, men have been tempted to look with some measure of nostalgia on past times. To look back and remember the better days. To compare the the trials of this hour and this day to some past era of history, and to believe that we live in uniquely bad times. To hope that if only we can return to some aspect of the culture, practices, or attitudes of the past, we'll be able to recover a brighter and a nobler era for ourselves and our children. That that is not unique to our time. It's not unique to any time in history. That has been a constant throughout history. Partly, I think that's a vestige of our cultural memory of Eden. There is somewhere in our minds, whether we think of it that way or not, a memory that there once was a better day. There once was a time when all things were as they should be. But partly, I think that's a byproduct of the way God designed us to deal with trial and trouble and pain and suffering overwhelmingly, when we look back over our lives, uh, the, the bad things are muted in our memory as time goes on, and the good things are what remains. All the ladies say amen. That's why they have more than one child sometimes, right? Everyone would be single ch- children if pain and suffering had the same clarity and crystallization in our memory that the good things do. And so we tend to look back and we we see the good things of history, we see the good things of some past era, and we kind of mute the difficulties that came with them. But as Peter looks ahead at what the church will face in the coming days, rather than saying, look, you've got an opportunity to recover a, a better time, a golden age, he looks ahead and instead he says, look, there's trials and tribulations coming. They will come from the outside pressure on the church and even to a degree from those who would creep into the church as Jude describes in his epistle. I don't believe this is a prophecy that Peter's giving in the sense that Peter has some special knowledge from God that there's a difficult era coming from, for the churches he's writing to. Remember, Peter writes, and he doesn't write to a specific church. This is not like the letter to the Ephesians or the Philippians or the Colossians, where Peter has one church in mind. He writes to that great mass of believers that he's ministered to over his entire career and says, all of you who have the same precious faith that I have preached, here's some words of caution, of warning, of encouragement. And so he's not giving a a prophecy in the sense that he knows through special revelation from God that there's a trial coming for those churches. Instead, I think what he's doing here is he's looking with wisdom upon the nature of the church. And he says, you know what? There's always trials coming for the church. There's always difficulty that yet lies ahead of us. It is the nature of this sin-cursed world that we live in that the world is always struggling against the truth, trying to suppress it and silence it where they can. And so far from looking on the church and looking ahead at their future and calling on them to recapture some brighter past, 
Peter instead looks ahead and calls on them to defend the truth and the authority of Scripture in a battle that must be fought in every generation, in every age, and in every church. Look at verses 1 and 2 as Peter calls them back to Scripture. He says, Beloved, I I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. But, beloved, I'm writing to you to stir you up, to encourage you, You know, in many ways, the themes of 1st and 2nd Peter follow similar courses. Pastor's been drawing out in 1st Peter, as we've been studying for several weeks now, how Peter keeps coming back to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. That that is the thing that meets our needs. Flip over for a second. Keep your finger here. Flip back just a chapter or two to the end of chapter 1 in 2nd Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, pick up in verse 16. Peter writes and says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him in the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Peter looks back on his history, on his life experience, and he says, you know what, I was there with John and James as we stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there when God opened the heavens and Christ revealed a glimpse of his full glory. And we were struck blind, as it were, by the shining character of Christ. And we heard God speak out of heaven and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he says, all of that that we've experienced, yet still better that we have the sure word of prophecy passed down from the fathers. That we have those things that God has recorded for us in the pages of scripture that did not come by the will of man, but that God moved men to write and to establish so that his church can look at them and have them in every day and in every age. None of us got to stand there with Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Christ. But Peter says, you know what, it's better for you that you have the completed scriptures that you can look back to and that you can cling to. It's better for you that you can hold in your hands the full message that God has for his people than even that you had stood there beside us. What a reality that is. You know, it is just a part of human nature that we acclimate to things and move on relatively quickly in our life. Whatever is going on at any given time, it does not take us very long for it to start to seem, I'll use the word normal, right, Doug? That's a setting on the dryer, but things start to seem normal if you do them for long enough. And frankly, it doesn't take that long. And I'm always reminded of this and encouraged that that's a human condition as we read through the Old Testament. So we study Israel. Imagine Israel. God leans them out of the promised land, or out of Egypt, sorry, heading for the promised land. And day by day, they're walking under a massive pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God's visible sign that they're walking in his will. It's not complicated to figure out what God wants us to do. When the pillar moves, we follow it. 
And he leads them to uh, the Mount Sinai. And when they get there, they go through several weeks of preparations and purifications and cleansing. And there's fire and lightning on the mountain. And and there's rules not to touch the mountain. And it's impressed upon them how serious this is that God is getting ready to speak to them. And then God does speak to them. And he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and following. And their response, this is such a spectacular, such an overwhelming experience that all of Israel, as one man, flees out the other side of the camp away from the mountain, falls down on their faces and says, Moses, tell God not to ever talk to us again. Have God talk to you and you can tell us what God wants us to know. We we can't bear it. It's too much. They're that impressed by what God does when he speaks. Forty days later, they're making a golden calf. How quickly experiences fade in our memory. How quickly the presence of God doing all of his miracles and all of his wonders and all of his display of power becomes normal and routine. But the word of God we have before us, it's not an experience that we have to try and hang on to in our memory. We can come back to it day by day by day by day. And so Peter says, it's better for you. I'm writing to you to encourage you, to stir you up, that you might be mindful of the words. Chew on them, meditate on them, digest them, spend time in them so that you can be prepared for that which is coming ahead. Peter, in this way, is acting very much in the legacy of the Old Testament prophets. As you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, you begin to realize that by sheer volume, overwhelmingly, their message is not one of new information, though there is much of that. But overwhelmingly, it is a call back to a rightler relationship with God that they've already been told about in the scripture they already have. It's a reminder to come back to those things that they already know. And Peter does the same thing. He calls us back. What a a tender tone he has. Beloved, my loved ones. You know, this is astonishing to see this in Peter. Remember, what's Peter's defining characteristic? He's brash. The the words haven't even all the way gotten through his mind before they're out his mouth usually. He just blurts stuff out and then sometimes stands there feeling foolish and regrets it. And yet here he is and he looks at the church and he says, My beloved, I'm writing to encourage you. I'm writing to comfort you. I want you to to take heart in the days that are coming. I, I don't want you to be confused or deceived. Don't think that there's no trial coming. Don't think that it's all a bed of roses that lies ahead of the church. But I want you to take heart and take hope because you can lean upon the truth that God's already given you. You can come back to and cling to those things that you've already been taught. He wants to stir up in the church, a pure mind by way of reminder, to encourage them, to make them consider and meditate. You know, that's, that's something that we can do even more than the church that Paul, Peter's writing to can do. They have the Old Testament, and they have some, at this point in the mid-60s AD, they have some of the New Testament, although it's still somewhat scattered, and churches have varying amounts of it depending on where the letters have been copied and forwarded onto at this point. But we have the benefit of the full complement of Scripture. We have all of God's Word to us available Frankly, in any number of formats at hand, most of us have more than one Bible sitting around at our house that doesn't even get used all the time, not because there's anything wrong with it, just because we have so many. It's so available to us. We have no excuse for not spending the time in it. What we need is not some new revelation, not some new answer from God, not some new guidance or direction but instead to call to remembrance, to ruminate on, to meditate in those things 
that we already have before us, that we've already been told from the pages of Scripture. You know, James, when he speaks of Scripture, he describes it as a looking glass. He says the Scriptures are as a looking glass, and when we look into them, if we don't change ourselves, James says, if we don't look into them and take action, the fault is in us, not in Scripture. But you know, there's something implied in that too. What does a looking glass do? When I get up and look at it first thing in the morning and then I I shave and, you know, clean up a little bit, the looking glass changes too. It doesn't look like I looked first thing in the morning. It changes to meet the present reality. Scripture doesn't change, but I'm always amazed at how a passage of Scripture that I know well Sometimes that I even have largely committed to memory can come alive and strike new meaning and potency into my life when I come back to and visit it again. Scripture's not static, not because what the text says changes, but because as we change and we come back to a passage, God has a new and a different work to do from that passage in our hearts and lives. And the Holy Spirit moves us in new and different ways. You know, one of the things that I take comfort in as I share the word of God in whatever the context is, is that God knows what people need to hear and he's doing the work of moving hearts. That's not my job. In fact, it's something I can't do and, and no man can do. No matter how eloquent no matter how well-spoken, no matter how convincing, no man in all history has ever moved a human heart. But God does. And his call to his people is to come back to his word and let his word do the work in hearts that it alone can do. Notice finally how Peter here characterizes the word of God in chapter 2 or in verse 2 of chapter 3 he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets those things that have been established for you those things that we should dwell on and teach that should lead us the scriptures are those things that were delivered by the, the holy the sanctified the prophets of the old testament and the apostles of Peter's day That standard reminds us of the complete and finalized nature of the scriptures. Peter does not say that we need to take heed of every word then spoken by every preacher in every church. Nor yet that we should be mindful of the words of this bishop or that bishop, whatever church he may preach in. But instead, the words that grab our attention were to be those God-appointed and God-authenticated words through his spokesmen that had been recorded in the pages of scripture. This closed brotherhood who spoke not their own words, but as the Spirit of God moved them for his purpose and his will. There are none such today, and even in Peter's time in writing, they were fading out such that he he speaks of the prophets as of things that are past, and the apostles as few and fading. Theirs was not a legacy that would outlive Peter for long. But rather, theirs was a message that was almost complete, a testimony that had nearly reached its completion. And that, as that hour drew near, Peter's encouragement to the church to cling not to men or to experiences, but to the scriptures grew ever stronger. So why do we need to cling to that? Peter warms us up for this. He he reminds us, I'm I'm encouraging you. He's telling us what he's doing so that we can be participants in it. But why do we need this encouragement? Verses 3 and 4, because scoffers are here. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Knowing this first, which is to say, bear it on the top of your mind in the days ahead. Uh, Peter is not suggesting that this doctrine is the single preeminent doctrine that we must cling to. 
But rather, he's reminding us that in the days ahead, this truth will be so necessary, so constantly required of us, that it ought to be considered prominently in our thinking, first as it were. It's a warning that is so important that we ought to cling to it. The warning that in the last days, which is not a particular time period, to the Jewish mind, just a little caveat here, in the Jewish mind, in Peter's mind, the last days is anything that happens after the Messiah comes. The whole church age falls in the last days, according to Peter's vernacular. See, in the Jewish mind, as they looked at the coming of Christ from the Old Testament prophecies, they see the last days as anything from the time the Messiah arrives until the end of time itself. They had no recognition from the Old Testament prophets that there was going to be a, at least a 2,000-year gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so it's common for Peter and the other particularly Jewish authors in the New Testament to speak of the church age as being the last days. He says, as these last days are here, scoffers will come. Those who creep into the church, mockers, deriders of the church, teachers of false doctrine, deniers of that which they know in their heart of hearts to be true. Such men have been in every age. And though their often insidious and creeping nature, we're prone to forget about them, to to think that at times they are not among us. Jude warns us similarly that such men creep in if the church is unaware. Jesus himself warns of them, and when Paul speaks of them, he calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. They're those who creep into the church, who try and come alongside the church. Such scoffers, Peter warns, will be recognized primarily by two things. First, that they walk according to their own lusts. Peter is not here suggesting that believers are to be ascetics in the Greek sense of denying the body in order to achieve some sort of uh, spiritual power or purity. There's a, an old, kind of particularly Catholic, a monastic tradition that believes that if you wound the body, if you deny the body, if you suffer in your body, that is somehow purifying to the spirit. That's a doctrine found nowhere in scripture. All of the self-flagration, all of the starvation, all of the various things that they go through are perversions of what scripture teaches. They tend to take that doctrine and root it in Scripture's teaching about fasting. But it's a complete misunderstanding of fasting. Fasting is not about making your body suffer. It's about making something more important even than the food you eat. It's about putting our relationship with God and our prayer life on such a priority in our lives that at times we even forget to eat Because of the relationship and the time and the effort we're spending in prayer. It's not about the suffering. It's about the Savior. And so Peter's not here suggesting that the fact that they they satisfy their, their lusts, their hungers, their desires is wicked because we're never to satisfy our hungers and desires. What he's pointing to here is saying that these people, these scoffers, live a lifestyle that's not marked by the work of Christ in them. Rather than having a lifestyle that is marked by, that that has visible evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit so that we're day by day growing more into the image of Christ, they instead have a lifestyle that is marked by being overrun with and controlled by their lusts and desires. Whatever they want, they satisfy. They have no self-control and no self-denial in any matter. Peter speaks of them and and says that they have a a lifestyle that's given over towards seeking out their passions and their lusts. Well, no believer ever has perfect victory over the flesh in this life. Scripture is clear that a genuine believer will have an overall pattern of growth into the image of Christ. That is a work that God will accomplish in his people. 
But these scoffers have no pattern of growth, only their lusts and their constant service to them. So first, Peter looks at them and he says, look, these scoffers are coming and they will be defined by the fact that they walk, they live, their lifestyle is overrun by their satisfaction of themselves, not by their service to their master. And secondly, Peter says, such men will claim that God is not at work in the world and will deny the truth of Scripture. Look at this, or look at verse 4. So they walk according to their own lusts in verse 3. In verse 4 he says, And they say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Boy, that, that just has a ring that we recognize from the world around us today. Where's God at work? Where, where is he? Everything goes on like it always has all of history, and where's God at work? The evolutionist says, you look, all of history, we can map it out, slow, gradual processes, billions and billions of years. We don't need God for this. We've got it figured out. Peter looks at them, and he says, such men reject the truth of Scripture. They reject that God is at work in the world around them. And they reject, therefore, that God will do those things that he has said he is do, will do. Such men have no fear of God. They have no fear or disdain for false gods either, but they cannot bear the God of the Bible. If they can claim to accept some God of their own creation, then they're comfortable with that. But the God of the Bible who creates with the power of his word, who judges as he did in Noah's day, will one day return, and who will one day return to bring all creation under his, the power of his son as the rightful ruler of that creation, that God they cannot bear and will mock and ridicule and deny and denigrate at every opportunity. Any false God will do, but not the God of the Bible. You know, it's always fascinating to me, we won't get political here, but it's always fascinating to me as you watch the world around us as a believer, those who believe in what the scripture has to say and try and order their lives according to that are, are mocked and derided. We're, we're backwards, we're confused, we're, we're rednecks and hicks and, and just, you know, bitter clingers to our Bible and our guns. Where's the mocking and the derision for, you know, those who follow Islam and have barbaric practices that they still perpetrate upon the women who live in their society? Where's the mockery for Hinduism that is surrounded by cows while their civilization largely starves because they won't eat a cow? Where's the mockery for all of the many follies and foolishnesses and contradictions of false religions? Those must be respected and honored as their culture. But Christianity, Christianity's fair game to be mocked and ridiculed and derided. Peter looks at that and says, look, that time is coming. There will always be scoffers because the issue is not are you religious or not. The issue is do you believe what God says or not. Because they can't accept what God says. They won't accept what Scripture says. Because if they do, they become responsible for their relationship with God. This pattern is found in all ages. Men are always happy to have a God who demands a few sacrifices who can, they can use to explain that which they don't otherwise understand about the world in which they live and, and who calls them to be good, whatever that means, But they never want anything to do with the God of the Bible. False gods abound and men everywhere in all ages desire and love them. So long as it is not the God of Scripture. And notice finally the the conclusion that these scoffers draw. They look at the, the world and they say, where is the promise of his coming? I'm kind of doing this backwards. He said, first... For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Nothing's changing. God's not doing anything. Therefore, 
Where's the promise of his coming? See, he's not coming like he said he would. He's not going to do the things he promised he would do. He won't be back for his people. You've been saying that for 2,000 years. Remember Paul and Peter and John all expected to see Christ return before they passed away. Each and every one of them speaks with an expectation that Christ is coming even now. That same expectation that we still have today. And the world looks on and says, see, God can't be believed and trusted. He's not coming. He hasn't come yet. Peter says they're ignorant. This logic is flawed in many ways. First, they lie to themselves and claim that God is not active in his creation. And then from that false conclusion, they believe that God is therefore not acting in his creation now and therefore will not act at all. This logic is flawed in many ways. It assumes first that we can know all the work that God is doing in his creation. Think about that for a second. We live in a world that says, see, God's not doing anything. Where, where's God at work? Where, where are he? If God did some miracles, then we'd believe in him. Just like Israel, right? Just like the Egyptians, as God is calling Israel out of Egypt. Just like all, all the Pharisees who see the miracles of Christ. Christ who nearly wiped out disease for three years in Judea and Galilee. If only God would do some miracles, but those aren't good enough. So God's not working. We forget that God is at work in so many ways that we can't see and don't understand. We don't have the perspective to see what God is doing at all times. God is a sovereign God who does not need to work in miraculous ways to accomplish his will. He sovereignly orchestrates history to accomplish his purposes through his divine providence. And he does not have to and is not forced to give some kind of grandstand view of his work. Remember the story of Job? But for a few verses at the beginning of Job, where God reveals to us why all of that plays out, Job would have no idea what's happening in his life. Job doesn't know that God is demonstrating to Satan and to a watching world that those who are faithful to him are faithful more than just for the good things that he provides in life. In fact, Job goes through all of the trial and suffering still ignorant of that. And when he gets to the end and God finally comes and speaks to him, do you remember what God's answer is? Job's basic question throughout all of that is the question we always have in trial. Why, God? What's God's answer? Because I'm God. He does not... In that moment, explain to Job all the intricacies of what's going on. His answer to Job is, Job, who's God and who's man in this? I'm in control. Trust that in my providential good pleasure, I'm doing that which is good for my people, which will draw them to me, which will work out those things in their lives that I have determined are good for them. God is at work always and constantly in our lives. And every once in a while, we get a a little glimmer of something God has done, and we get all excited, and wow, look what God did. He's doing those things and so much more in every breath and in every moment. So we, we sometimes fall into this trap of the scoffers of believing because we don't see him doing it. God is not working. But secondly, they have a a second false assumption. They assume that if God is not working the way they expect, then either he cannot or will not work in other ways. They say, look, he's not been doing the things that we think he should be doing right now. Therefore, he's not going to do any of the things he's promised. He's not working this out the way I think he should work it out. So it's not going to work out at all. What hubris. 
We, we look at God's plans and at his working in the world around us and sometimes we think that, well, God, you, you're not taking care of that situation. I've been praying about it and you're not fixing it yet. And God says, I've got it under control. Those things that he is working in and accomplishing are higher than our ways, incomprehensible to us from so many perspectives. The scoffers wrongly conclude that because God does not act as they think he should act, then he will not ever act as he has promised to do. That is a claim of scoffers and mockers of the truth in every age. They claim that because there is suffering in the world, God cannot be good. He wouldn't allow suffering If I were a good God, I wouldn't allow suffering. Therefore, God shouldn't allow suffering either. They claim that because God allows bad things to happen to good people, right? How many good people are there? There's none good, no, not one. Scripture's clear. We're all reaping the consequences of our sin. And yet... The world looks and says because God allows bad things to happen to good people, God is either not good or not in control, one or the other. It's a false claim. They claim that because their particular preferences or inclinations are not supported from Scripture, that God is not moral. How many people come to Scripture and they say, look at what God did here. That's an awful, terrible, wicked God. As though... We, the creature steeped in sin, get to judge the character of an almighty and righteous God. They claim that because God does not provide this miracle to meet that need, then God must be impotent or unwilling. As though in his divine providence he's not working out his good pleasure from his throne in his good time. All of these and a thousand more are what Peter warns about here. They look and they say, where's the promise of his coming? See, God is not doing what I think he should be doing. Therefore, he's not going to do any of the things I think he should be doing. And you know what? Sometimes those questions and those doubts don't just come from the scoffers. Sometimes we struggle with those as well. Let's be honest. This has been a wild couple of years, right? No matter how much we trust in our Lord and Savior, there have been moments in the last couple of years where I know I have, and I would imagine each one of us has looked at the world around us going absolutely nuts and said, God, what in the world is going on? Why is this happening? How did this get so far out of control? It's a temptation. It's a struggle. We see the world going nuts all around us. And we're tempted to to listen to the, the words of the scoffers sometimes as they say, See, God's not working. Let's look finally at what they willfully forget. Verses 5 through 7. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Peter says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. For this they willfully forget, They know the truth in their heart of hearts, but they choose to ignore that which is made evident by creation, which is taught to them by the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. They willfully forget. Kids, I'm going to put this into vernacular for a moment. I'm not condoning the use of this word to be used towards anyone else. Clear? Let's just put the disclaimer out there. Peter's saying, look, they're being stupid on purpose. They know better, but they're choosing to be dumb about this. They willfully forget that God is who God is. 
Paul, in Romans chapter 1, tells us, look, when their heart of hearts, whether they like to admit it or not, everyone who's ever lived can look at the creation around us and see that there is a God, he must be eternal, and he must be all-powerful. The evidence is right there staring everyone in the face, but they willfully forget. John says, as he's warning his apostles and encouraging them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, look, the Holy Spirit has ministry for you, but he also has a ministry for the world, and he will convict everyone who lives of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In their heart of hearts, they know that they're sinners, that God is righteous, and that judgment is coming. But they willfully forget. They deny the truth of Scripture because it's unpleasant and uncomfortable for them. And what specifically does Peter accuse them of forgetting? He says they forget that those in Noah's day scoffed and mocked and claimed that God had forgotten his creation just as men do today. He says they willfully forget. They look at the world around them and they say, God isn't working, God isn't doing anything. And Peter says, did you forget the flood? God, who by the power of his word, created the earth so that it was standing over the water and in the water. Look, there's, there's water, and some of the earth is under the water, and some of it's above the water, and people were living on the part above the water. It's not complicated here. And God came along, and he said, you know what? I'm going to judge this sin. And with water, he flooded the whole earth so that only Noah... And his family with him survived and came out the other side. The evidence of that is written all over the creation we live in today. Millions of dead things laid down under mud buried all across the earth. It's everywhere written. All the coal and oil seems that we enjoy the fruit and the benefit of today in our world. Lots and lots and lots of dead things buried in soil all over the earth. All the fossil evidence all over the earth. Let me tell you something. If an animal dies in your backyard and, and lays out there in your backyard, and just, you just leave it there, yeah, it just stinks, right, Caleb? doesn't fossilize. When animals just die, they don't fossilize. So how did we get all the fossils all over the earth? They say, oh, well, some of them got caught in mudslides. That's a lot of mudslides. Millions and millions and millions of fossilized animals all over the earth. That's a lot of mudslides. But that's exactly what you'd expect when there's a worldwide flood that sweeps all across the globe, burying everything in layers of mud and silt. Peter says, don't they know that God has already reminded us that he is at work in the world around us? Can't they see the evidence? God, who by the power of his word created, by the power of his word also judged, and this world that we now live in, Peter says, is reserved, it's held ready for yet another future coming judgment. God's not done with his work. We're just in the lull in between. And the scoffers who today say, see, God's not working, God's not doing anything, God's not taking care of his people, God's not working in his church, Those are the same things that the men and the women who refused to join Noah in his offer of safety and rescue in the ark said and believed right up until the day the rain started. See, God's not working. It's never rained before, Noah. What makes you think it's going to start now? There's never been a worldwide flood before, Noah. Just as they did then men and women around us today look at the truth of God's word and they say that can't be true God can't actually mean that look at everything that's going on in the world around us God can't be at work there's COVID happening Peter encourages us cling to the truth of scripture come back to what God has promised us come back to where God reveals himself and his purpose and his work in his people. He's not forgotten us. He's not off of his throne. He's not impotent or unable. He is even in these things that we live through today, working out his goodwill and pleasure 
in his people, just as he always has. We are to do as Noah did in his day, and as Peter calls upon the church to do in his day. We stand fast in the hope that God provides to those who call upon him, and we share that offer of hope with all who will listen. Sometimes we long for a time like what we remember or like what we imagine the past was. And we're tempted to try and achieve that, uh, that past end through politics or through re- retreating out of contact with the rest of the world or sometimes even through rebellion. But the reality is that from the time of Adam until today, there have always been scoffers and mockers who reject the word of God. And there's never yet been a political or a military or a monastic solution to that. Scripture alone moves the hearts of men and women. Scripture alone takes the heart that is cold and dead and draws it back into a right relationship with God. And those who are God's people are called to recognize that they will never be entirely comfortable in this world because we are not of this world and we're not destined for this world. I love how the author of Hebrews puts it. He speaks of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their sojourn in the promised land and they're not comfortable there. And the author of Hebrews says it's because they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They were in the promised land looking to make this their home because they were looking for a heavenly home. In the same way, we're here in this world today and we don't need to be making this world our home. We don't need to be making ourselves comfortable here for a few more years. We need to remember that we're destined for an eternal home, for a heavenly home and and desperately calling to all who will listen to come along with us and to share in the hope that we have as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. Let us share that hope and that longing with a lost and dying world, recognizing that most will not accept it, but searching earnestly for those in whose heart God is at work so that the sound of truth rings in their ears and he draws them to himself. Peter encourages the churches of his day to be ready for the day that lies ahead of them. And so should we be ready for the day that lies ahead of us, knowing there will be scoffers, but clinging to the truth of God's word and sharing it with all who will listen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and in control. It's been so easy through this past year and a half, almost two years now, to get distracted and overwhelmed by everything that's going on. To uh, allow the chaos that the world is in around us to create chaos in our hearts and lives. Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to your truth, to cling to your promises of, of hope and assurance and comfort and rest, not in this world but in the next with you. Father, give us a passion to share that truth with a world that now more than ever needs to hear it and for some, for the first time in their lives, recognizes that they need to hear it. We thank you and praise you and honor you now in Christ's name. Amen. Mark, if you would, come and close us with a final song.